Hey, it's the Perfect Faith Podcast. Welcome. Good to see you. How you doing? I'm Kirk Klingerman, your host. This is episode 13 of season 5. We have been doing a series entitled The Basics, which was about the basic elements of the doctrine of Christ that we find in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. But in this episode, we're just going to take a break from that series just for a little bit. We're fast approaching Resurrection Sunday, or the Resurrection Day, if you will, or commonly called Easter. But what we were going to do today is we're going to detour and just simply talk about the cross. We're going to talk about the physical aspects of the cross, the physical aspects of Jesus' crucifixion, and then we'll talk about the spiritual side of the cross. So let's start with the physical realm of the cross. So we know that the cross was the Romans' favorite tool for executing criminals and slaves. It was probably the worst form of humiliation anyone could endure. Uh, The Romans viewed it as the most supreme penalty, and many considered it to be the most wretched of deaths. Now, the cross was also a a tool of deterrence. So what did that mean? That simply mean it was always done in public, and it usually included its stripping and flogging the offender. And of course, there was a high degree of cruelty involved with it. And of course, that is simply because it it added to the deterrence. Crucifixion is a very cruel act, as we will uh, soon see. As a matter of fact, it is not meant to be a fast death. It is, in fact, a slow death, which was the result of a cumulative impact of thirst, of hunger, of exhaustion, of exposure, and the trauma caused by the scourging to begin with. And then, of course, it includes asphyxiation. And the victim was attached to the cross either by ropes or by nails. And when I say nails, we're talking about nails that were five to seven inches in length and probably about three-eighths of an inch thick, or probably they were probably closer to spikes, okay? And they weren't necessarily driven through the palm of the hands, probably not. They're probably, in fact, they would be driven through the wrists, of the hands or of the arms simply because the palms would never hold the weight of the individual. But if you drive it through the, just below the palm and the wrist in that area, it it would hold the weight of the individual. And of course it causes searing pain. It's excruciating. Now you would say, yeah, but the Bible says he was, it, it was by the hands. Well, from the wrist to the fingers, that was all considered part of the hand. So the wrist included, as being part of the hand. So anyway, when they drove the nails, they were probably, they were driving those nails through the wrist. Now, prior to the act, the prisoners were forced to carry the cross beam of the cross. And it probably weighed, I think, roughly around 100 pounds or so. And then they would also place a placard around the neck of the criminal, which would, which would uh, proclaim what the crime was that he committed. So as we move into the physical cross of Christ, we're going to start by reading John 19, verses 17 through 22. And he, bearing his cross, went forth into a place called the place of a skull, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two other with him on either side, on either side one, 
and Jesus in the midst. And Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross. The write, and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. This title then read many of the Jews, for the place where Jesus was crucified was nigh to the city or near the city. And it was written in Hebrew and Greek and Latin. Then said the chief priest to the Jews of the Jews to Pilate, Write not the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. So we know now that Jesus was crucified outside the city, the city meaning Jerusalem. And of course that took place at a hill called Golgotha or the skull or Calvary is, a, is another name that it's known as. And of course the placard that would normally go around his neck was instead nailed to the head of the cross above Jesus' head. And of course it said Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews, which is kind of interesting because it said nothing of the blasphemy of which the Jews accused him. The Jews accused him of blasphemy, and that's what they wanted him crucified for. But what, was he, but what was stated was that he was the king of the Jews, right? Which actually goes back to his private questioning from Pilate, where Pilate asked him if he was a king. And, of course, go back and read the accounts in the Gospels just to see what that dialogue consisted of. But he actually was asking whether or not Jesus was a king. And, of course, we know that Jesus is the King of Kings, but he said that his kingdom is not of this earth. So, we know also that he was crucified between two thieves, or two criminals. So, that being said, Jesus essentially identified with us on the cross, and that would be as the Son of Man. Jesus held three positions, or holds three positions. At least there's three of them, there's more. But we know him as the Son of Man, the Son of God, and God the Son. As the Son of Man, he was crucified on the cross because he represented man to God. Okay, Again, that's getting more on the spiritual side. But we're going to still continue on with the physical act that took place first so we can get somewhat, somewhat of an appreciation of what Jesus went through. And I, I would dare say that we don't even have a clue if we're honest with ourselves. But anyway, Jesus identified with us as we were enslaved to sin, which made us criminals in the sight of God. So he also identified all with our weaknesses and our humiliation. Now we continue to read in John 19, verses 23 and 24. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to every soldier apart, and also his coat. Now the coat was without seam, woven from the top throughout. They said, therefore, among themselves, let us not rend it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, they parted my raiment among them, and for my vesture they did cast lots. These things, therefore, the soldiers did. So we know that Jesus was flogged and actually stripped twice. When you include the severe beating that he received before he was sentenced to death. So when he was beaten prior to Pilate sentencing him to crucifixion, Jesus endured a beating in which no person could recognize him 
because that beating was so severe. But in the process of it, they had stripped him of his robes, of his garments, I should say. They put a robe on him. Then they took that robe off of him. Then they put his garments back on him. And now he comes to Golgotha and they take him off again. So he's actually been stripped twice. We also know that it was nails that were used to attach him to the cross and not ropes. Now, the question is, how do we know that? Since when we read the accounts of the crucifixion itself, in the four Gospels don't really mention nails specifically. So how do we know that it wasn't, that they were nails that held him up? Well, it's, it came after the cross. John 20, verse 24 through 25. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, Except I shall see his hands, the print of the nails, and put my fingers into the print of the nails, and thrust my hands into his side, I will not believe. Then we read in Psalm 22, verse 16, For dogs have compassed me, the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me, they pierced my hands and my feet. Now, if you read Psalm 22, you will find that it's very prophetic. In other words, it prophesies to the crucifixion of Jesus and the things that he went through. There is a number of things covered in Psalm 22, written centuries before Jesus even came to this earth, which also points to the validity of what took place. Then in Colossians 2.14, it says, Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. See that? Nailing it to his cross. And of course, this is kind of a transitional verse from the physical to the spiritual, but we'll again get into the spiritual side in more detail in a little bit. Another element of crucifixion was that the shoulders and elbows of Jesus would have been dislocated. Well, how do we know that? Again, back in Psalm 22, and this time in verse 14, said, I am poured out like water, and my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. Now we're going to read 19, uh, 29 through 37 of John 19, going a little bit further in the physical act, then we'll break some more things down, and partially about even what we just mentioned about the joints of his shoulders and his elbows being out of joint. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, vinegar he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. The Jews therefore, because it was the preparation that the body should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day, for the Sabbath day was a high day, and this is actually referring to Passover, not your normal Saturday Sabbath, but this is referring to Passover, which was about to take place on Friday. Um, they besought Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then came the soldiers and break the legs of the first and the other which was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they break not his legs. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side, and forthwith came there out blood and water. And he that saw it bear record, and his record is true. And he knows that he says true, that ye might believe. 
For these things were done that the scripture might be fulfilled. A bone of him shall not be broken, which is taken from Psalm 34, verse 20. And again, another scripture says, They shall look upon him whom they pierced, which is Zechariah 12, verse 10. Compared to other crucifixions, Jesus' death came relatively early. But there's reasons for that. And just because they say relatively early doesn't mean it wasn't long. It wasn't excruciating for a long period of time. If you study, I, I didn't pu- I'm not putting in the actual times that the Bible gives, but by all accounts, the approximate time of his death was about after six hours on the cross. So it took him about six hours to die, which incidentally is kind of interest, interesting is because six is also the number of man or mankind. Which again, just as we said a little bit ago, is that Jesus identified with man as the son of man, which means he died in six hours pointing to man once again. Now there was a common ending to a crucifixion if that crucifixion was taken longer than what they wanted it to take. And that ending was by a method called, uh, I'm going to see if I pronounce this correctly, uh, crew refracture, which essentially means the breaking of the bones of the legs. And this prevented the victim from pushing himself upward. Thus, the tension cannot be relieved from the muscles of the chest uh, and rapid suffocation would occur. And again, I'm going to go in more detail about what I just said to make that a little bit more clear. So the legs of the two thieves were broken, but when they came to Jesus, they saw that it was unnecessary. So what was the physical cause then of the blood and water that came from Jesus' side when the soldier pierced him in the side? Now think about this. Jesus experienced hours of limitless pain. Cycles of twisting, joint-rending cramps, intermittent partial asphyxiation, searing pain where tissue for, um, I'm reading part of this so I can get a better description for you. Searing pain where tissue is torn from his lacerated back as he moves up and down against the rough timber. Again, remember, prior to the cross, Jesus was flogged or severely beaten. I mean, it was beyond hamburger. So now... You take him being stripped and he's he's against this rough timber and he's pushing himself up and maybe slumping down a bit and up and down that back and forth motion. You know, now he's suffering even more as, as a result of his condition. Then there's another agony that begins and that is the terrible crushing pain in the chest as the pericardium slowly fills with serum or fluid and begins to compress the heart. The pericardium is a like a protective sac around the heart, which has usually just a little bit of fluid around it to help protect it as it beats in, in the chest cavity. Now remember, Psalm 22:14 said, I am poured out like water and my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. So we know from John... 1934, as we just read a moment ago, that blood and water immediately came out when he was pierced in the side, which may indicate that he died of heart failure 
versus suffocation. Or if you prefer, he broke of a, or he died rather of a broken heart. So it's not so much that he asphyxiated or suffocated on the cross, but rather his heart gave way due to the intense pressure of the moment. Now, crucifixion typically ended in death through one of two ways. The first way was hypovolemic shock. And of course, the prolonged rapid heartbeat resulting from hypovolemic shock caused fluid to gather in the area around the heart. This is called pericardial effusion. Okay, that's that filling up of the fluid that we just talked about. Then the second way of death often occurred during crucifixion was due to asphyxiation. That just simply means the person could not breathe in enough oxygen to survive. Crucifixion victims were typically typically had to put weight up on their hands or their wrists that were nailed to the crossbeams, along with pushing up with the feet, you know, or ankles that had nails run through them as well. So consequently, because there were nails in the wrists, nails in the feet, and they're pushing up on their feet trying to get air, but when the pain gets too much, they begin to slump down. Now going back to Jesus' arms or his shoulders and his elbows being out of joint or being dislocated. One of the things that they did in the crucifixion was they weren't, they didn't so much as have the palms away from the cross. I mean, for some of you that are watching on the video, you can kind of see what I'm doing with my hands, where the palms are out away from the cross, but rather they would turn the palms inward toward the cross, which would put more pressure on the joints, on the shoulders, and on the elbows, and of course it worked against those joints, thus dislocating them when weight was applied to them, especially as they begin to become exhausted from being hung on the cross and trying to survive or trying to breathe. This, it's just excruciating. So, Over time, the ability to push up, to breathe, obviously would finally come to a point where they, would, they just couldn't do it anymore and they would asphyxiate or they would suffocate. Now, another thing that happened during the asphyxiation is that there would be a buildup of fluid around the heart, which we just talked about just a moment. And then, of course, moreover, fluid may have also come from the lungs. You know, as the pierce would have passed through the pleural cavity, which is the space that lies between the pleura, which are two membranes that line and surround the lungs, which are meant to protect the lungs and provide a protected coating for breathing, if you will, or, or a fluid. So, in other words, the pleural cavity contains a small amount of liquid known as pleural fluid which provides lubrication as the lungs expand and contract during respiration. When increased fluids occupy this space, it's referred to as pleural effusion and can severely restrict breathing depending on its size. So remember, Psalm 22.14 points to the heart, where it says, My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels or or." melted within me. So Psalm 22:14 really points to the fluid coming from the heart because he's talking about the heart. Didn't really say anything about the lungs. But I wouldn't exclude the lungs either. I mean, I can't really 
etch that one in stone to say this is an absolute. But indications show that it was probably from a broken heart, right? And so this leads to the spiritual side of the cross. In Galatians 3.13, through 14, it says, Christ redeemed, redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. See, the blood of Jesus declares his death as the perfect sacrifice. Which, is, which was foreshadowed by Old Testament sacrifices. We know from Scripture that the sacrifices of animals could never cleanse the soul or cleanse us of our sin. It required a human sacrifice, one without spot, one without wrinkle, one without blemish. It would have to be a perfect man. It would have to be someone that walked sinlessly throughout the earth. And there's only one that did that, and that was Jesus Christ. It was him. And so the cross of Christ put an end to the curse of the law. So he was the perfect sacrifice. And as a result of his cross, the curse of the law was also put to an end. Then we read in Ephesians 2, verse 11 through 16. Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly, you who formerly were far off had been made near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments, contained in ordinances, so that he himself might be made the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by having put to death the enmity. So through the cross, Jesus reconciled us unto God. Through the cross, he made us one new man where there was no longer Jew and Gentile, but rather we are just one. Then we read in Colossians 1, verses 19 through 23. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and that through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you who have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, was made a minister. So again, just as I said a moment ago, his cross removed the middle wall of partition, or the dividing wall, 
that divided us between Jew and Gentile, making one new man or making one church, just as there is one God, one Father, one Holy Spirit, one church. And then, of course, through his death, we were made holy and blameless. Then we read in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, For he has made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So on the cross, he took our sin upon himself. And really, if it gets down to it, it was our sin that killed Jesus. Because he took our sin upon himself. He became sin who knew no sin. Prior to the cross, he had experienced no sin whatsoever. But now, he's taken on the sin of humanity. He's taken all of our sins upon himself. Though he himself was clean, he himself is perfect without spot, without blame. But he took on our blame. He took on our sin. And it's that sin that caused him to die. But it was his love that motivated him to take our sin on. As Hebrews 12 tells us, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame. So because of the joy that he would have in reconciling us unto God the Father, where God can now be our Father, be our Abba, Jesus endured that cross, taking on our sin. So basically, if it gets down to it, we killed him. You know, that sounds a little blunt, but, you know, the reason he went to the cross was our sins. And he was actually taking our blame upon himself. You know, it's just like people, they talk about justice, and some people have a hard time receiving forgiveness because they don't like this idea of getting off scot-free. Well, no one's getting off scot-free because justice was served when Jesus went to the cross. Jesus paid your price, which means or paid for your sin, which means that he is worthy for you to receive forgiveness, which means we need to humble ourselves before him and receive that forgiveness because Jesus is worthy. You are worthy. So to reject that forgiveness would be almost an insult, would be an insult to Jesus if you really think about it. He took our sin upon himself. He paid the price. He gave the perfect sacrifice. And of course, in him, we are the righteousness of God. Now listen carefully. So many try to become what you call better Christians. Well, there's no such thing because our righteousness is strictly based on the righteousness of Jesus. You cannot add anything to what Jesus has already done. That would be self-righteousness. Then you would be slipping away from grace and entering into works. And with that, that also means his death on the cross means freedom from sin. His cross removed the dominion or power of sin in our lives. Romans 6, verse 5 through 7. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also in the likeness of his resurrection knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin, for he that is dead is freed from sin. Romans 6.14 says, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. See, grace is more than unmerited favor. Grace is 
an ability that God gives us to do the things of God that we cannot do in of ourselves. By his grace, we walk in the righteousness of Jesus through faith. So it's his grace that enables us to say no to sin. So sin no longer has dominion over us because we're not under the law, we're under grace. So the cross of Jesus, his death, removed us from under the law of death, sin and death and placed us under grace. So in Romans 6, 22 through 23, But now being made, for, made free from sin, become servants of God, you have, you have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ the Lord. And one final scripture to underscore some of the things that have taken place spiritually on the cross, and that is this. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. That is the gospel. It is the power of God on the salvation. So I hope this is this has been something that's blessed you and something that's helped you to reconnect to Jesus and to appreciate what he's done for us. And of course, we do want to emphasize his resurrection because his resurrection proclaimed him to be the Son of God, which is Romans 1.4. And it's in the resurrection that we have life eternal, where we become sons of God. See, to be born again means to be born from above. That word again in the Greek means from above. So through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have life eternal, which means reconciliation with Abba, Father. In fact, we receive the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, or Daddy, Father. So rejoice. And uh, should you be listening to this around Resurrection Day, Resurrection Sunday, Easter, Happy Resurrection Day. And until the next time we meet, the Lord bless you, my friend. <laughs>